Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the world. My guest today is Philip Goldberg. And if you don't know who he is, Philip Goldberg has been studying the world's spiritual traditions for more than 45 years. Philip is a public speaker and workshop leader, a spiritual counselor, meditation teacher, and ordained interfaith minister. Philip is the author or co-author of some 25 books published in more than a dozen languages. His most recent book, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, is a manual for building and sustaining a foundation of peaceful strength in an ever-changing world. This is his story and this is his passion. Phil or Philip, welcome to Passion Harvest. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. I mean, studying spiritual traditions for more than 45 years, that's... You must have a lot of knowledge there. Actually, more than 50 now. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I'd love to dive into your lifelong quest for illumination. Sure. If you don't mind sharing that with the audience. No, it uh, goes back to when I was um, a student in the 60s. And uh, anybody who remembers the 60s knows how or heard about him from uh, older pair uh, people. Um, it was a, a crazy time, as crazy in its own way as this last few years have been for us. And um, I, when I was young, I was caught up in it all, confused, angry, worried, and uh, groping for answers to important questions about how to live a good life, what the meaning of it all was, how where I fit in the universe, how to be happy, uh, all the usual existential questions, but, but bigger cosmic questions as well. Um, I had ra been raised with no religion, but there was something about the spirit of the times that led to searching for something greater. And in that mix of influences, um, I discovered the spiritual teachings that come to us from the East. Mm -hmm. um, and I resonated with them, with uh, what, what the world thinks of as Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, more precisely, the sort of uh, teachings of certain schools that came to us from India that we now know as yoga and Vedanta. And, and they just uh, made a great deal of sense to me. They were practical. They were empirical. Nobody asked me to believe in things that were uh, hard to believe in or to take anything on faith. No one told me I had to live a certain way and all that. And most important, when I 
put the principles and practices that uh, I learned to the test in my life to see if they worked, see if they held up, they did. And uh, they changed my life for the better. And so um, I saw some something deep and truthful in them, but that also held up to reason and you know the facts of the world and empirical experience. And so I dove in and uh, the rest was just an evolving history of learning and personal growth and uh, trying to be a conduit to other people for these teachings that um, I think have transformative value. Mm. Well, first of it's all, my passion. <laughs> oh, yes, it's around passion. Half us growing up in the 60s would have been an incredible experience. And I, I believe you um, teach with some of the leaders of transcendental meditation. Yeah, that's um, my initial search for different uh, practices led me to that sort of on the heels of the Beatles taking up the practices and famously going to India in 1968, which was you know, a turning point really in the his history of East meeting West. And uh, in the months following that, I, I was just, you know, one of many thousands of, if not millions of young people who uh, wanted to experience what they were advocating. And uh, I took to it deeply and became a couple of years later, uh, one of the early, uh, trained teachers of, of what we call TM, Transcendental Meditation. And are you still practicing it today? I it is still my central practice. I've learned many other practices that supplement it. And, uh, uh, you know, part of my repertoire of spiritual practices, many of which I, I chose to share in, in uh, the new book which I can't wait to hear about, but I just wanted to ask you about the power of meditation. How important is it in your life? Well, to me, it's, it's central. And, um, and it's central to the presentation in the book that uh, I have learned in my own life and many other lives uh, that I've come in uh, touch with, um, the importance of on a, on a very practical, tangible level of having a daily practice that takes you uh, deep within to what I call the uh, sanctuary of peace that we all have within us. And by doing that every day, as I have for all these years, um, a certain quality of inner quiet sticks with you and even when you lose it when things are upsetting and you know life is crazy it, it becomes easier and easier to return to it mm -hmm. and to retain a certain level of, of calm and uh, peace and contentment 
even in the midst of madness, or at the very least to come back to it. To, to, it gives you a certain resilience in the face of difficulties. And so uh, it's been as much a part of my daily routine as uh, brushing my teeth and you know eating and showering and you know all the other things we do for well-being and, and maintenance. And you also talk about developing spiritually while at the same time balancing life in the real world. That has been, <laughs> I have to say, what has been the sort of driving challenge of, of my life for these last 50 years or so. It has been that, how to integrate these profound spiritual teachings and principles and states of inner being while in the midst of you know being in the world and enjoying life dealing with the challenges that life faces uh, brings to our table being responsible being a friend a spouse and all the other things i am a citizen um, and it's what every person on a path of spiritual growth or personal development has to deal with because we uh, very few of us are called to go live in caves and you know be uh, re recluse renunciates and even they because I've met many of them I've met many a monk because I go to India a lot and I take tours to tour groups I've met monks who live in quiet ashrams. I've met solitary hermits. They all have challenges because they all have bodies and they have to be fed and they have to have clothing and shelter and warmth in the winter. And I always joke that, yes, you can try to escape it all and go live in a cave in the Himalayas. And then you'll probably get angry at the monk in the next cave for uh, chanting too loud or, you know, letting his, the smoke from his fire go into, <laughs> into your cave. So we, we all have to deal with stuff. And most of us have very complicated lives. And, you know, I wrote spiritual practice for crazy times before the pandemic, because it was already crazy then. And then it just got crazier. And uh, I, I, as I point out, the life can get crazy for any of us at any time, regardless of what else is, you know, going on in the in the larger culture. Well, since we're on the topic, I'd love to discuss some of the tools and or the techniques that you share in the book with the audience. Yes, um, there's a lot. You know, there. It's only a two hundred eight or 10 page book, but um, this, I packed a lot in it. And the centerpiece really is to establish a, a, a daily routine, wherein at, at least for a few minutes every day, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, if you have only 10, whatever, you go within and establish a sort of baseline of inner peace. And I advocate that regularity 
not just because it's a kind of refuge from the turmoil of outer life, but because it's, um, it develops a foundation for a, a sort of platform from which to act more effectively in the world. So I, I think it's a terribly important point for people who hear about practices like meditation and maybe feel inclined to uh, sample such practices and see if you know they affect their lives, but they're reluctant because they think they're so busy, they don't have time for such things. They see them as luxuries. I see them as necessities, as practical uh, aspect of, of a, a routine of life that makes the time you're not doing it uh, more satisfying and it makes your actions more effective, more creative, more compassionate, more intelligent. Uh, just as if I were to neglect eating for long enough, if I were to neglect showering long enough, I would feel the consequences. Hmm. If I don't meditate every day, if I were to stop doing it for a while, I would see things are not quite right. These are practical methods. They're not just, they're not a, a sort of religious obligations that you do because you think you'll, you know, some God will punish you or if you don't do it. They're not luxuries. I know a lot of people say, oh yes, you know, I, 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 love my yoga, I love my meditation, I love, you know, the spiritual organization I used to belong to, but I don't have time for that now. Someday when I retire, I'll do that again. Yeah. Well, that that would be very nice then, but what about the years between now and then? These are practical tools. And so um, I fill the book with, at first, advice about having a regular meditative practice and that there are things to be said about that and choices to be made. But then there's practices to do at other times of day. And uh, it, it's, it's a good idea to develop a kind of inventory of them, a repertoire, so you can call on practices to bring you back to that inner peace that you have within you but usually don't access uh, at any time, depending on the circumstances and your needs. So the book is you know, filled with tips and uh, guidelines for, for doing that. Like a roadmap. I just want to clarify, when you say go within, you're primarily referring to meditation. That, yes, I am, because that is what worked for me so well. And I recognize and, and talk in the book that um, there are many forms of meditation. There are many practices that are meditative, that are like meditation, that some people are inclined to uh, a centering prayer or other forms of prayer uh, or uh, 
what's now being called mindfulness practice. So there's many ways to access what is our birthright, our core of, of inner silence and peace. The deep meditation is the, the most widely used and, the, and I should add the best studied because you know in the last 40, 50 years, there's been a, thousands of, of research uh, uh, papers written about the uh, value uh, to health and well-being of meditation practices. So, um, and there's, you know, variety to choose from. I have to ask you, have you had any mystical experiences during your meditation practices? You know, that depends on what you mean by mystical experience. Wh whatever you think it means. I have studied the world's mystical traditions and the experiences recorded. First of all, we should say that the world's mystical traditions uh, on the surface all look different because they come from different cultures and through different, you know, sort of origins and religions. But when they talk about experience, they all come together in the commonalities. And there's different kinds of experiences people think of as mystical. Some of them are, you know, have a certain sensational and spectacular quality, visions, voices, out of body experiences, you know, in light and, you know, kind of stuff that makes for good movie scenes. But a good story. Deepest, <laughs> but the deepest and most common and perhaps most valuable mystical experience is really of nothing. It's of perfect silence. Someone once said the language of God is silence and everything else is a bad translation. Nice. And it's that purity of silence where you're awake inside, fully awake. Your consciousness. You're conscious, but you're not conscious of anything. You're just conscious. You are, consciousness is, and you are consciousness. You are a pure awareness. That is a core mystical experience. There's terminology for these things. But that is a deeply valuable mystical experience, if you want to call it mystical. It's uh, written about at great length in the uh, texts of the yoga and Vedantic traditions and in Buddhist traditions. And the mystics all over have talked about that deep silence. Uh, Christian mystics, Jewish mystics, uh, Sufis as well. And that I experience on a regular basis. I am not, I have never been, <laughs> I have never been uh, inclined, not inclined because that sounds like, you know, something you try to do, but it's just not been my, uh, my uh, nature to have spectacular experiences 
like some people have, you know, mm -hmm. visionary experience, mystical experiences, uh, uh, psychic experiences. I'm, I'm fairly intuitive, but I'm not given to uh, spectacular moments like that. Other people are, and bless them. But I, I say all this because the most common mystical experiences are very unspectacular. They're just deeply transformative and of great value, but they're not necessarily spectacular. So looking for them uh, might not be the best thing to do. Well, that was a great answer. Thank you so much. I just want to backtrack onto the monks in the cave that live most of their life meditating in the caves. Why, why are they doing this? When we've, I, I believe we come here, we choose to come here in our human form. Why, why are they um, experiencing their life like that? Um, you would have to ask each of them, but I, the ones I have met and my, my guess is most of them would say it's just their, it's their calling. Mm -hmm. Their calling in this life is to be detached from the world, to be disconnected, to devote themselves entirely to the pursuit of uh, whatever model of ultimate spiritual experience their tradition holds. Like an enlightenment almost. An enlightenment, a liberation, spiritual liberation, self-realization. In Sanskrit, they would say moksha, liberation, nirvana. These are, you know, uh, oneness with God. It, it depends on the tradition, which language they use. But the calling is so great. And the assumption is that they don't want any distractions. The, none of the distractions of worldly life, of family and responsibility and profession and thinking about money. There are people who are passionate about the spiritual life and who think they'll get to their ultimate goal faster if they disconnect from the world. And so they become uh, monks and nuns, but not all of them last. Because sometimes, and I've, I've met these many people like this, you know, that's the initial impulse, but then five years pass, 10 years pass, whatever, and suddenly, you know, the, uh, the nun in the convent seems much more appealing than she used to be, or the urge to have children or to enjoy the, uh, the life of the senses and the pleasures of life or a calling for a profession. These things come up and so not, they don't all stay because you know, 99% of us or whatever are not inclined to be uh, renunciates. And the world would, you know, fall apart if there were too many of them. <laughs> so most of us are not called to that life. But I respect those who have been called to it when it's authentic. And, and those people are blessed and they're, you know, wonderful and often joyful and living not necessarily in caves, but uh, um, 
renunciate lives in the context of a small spiritual community or a monastery. And many of them are doing good work in the world. They feed the poor. They, they uh, work toward improving the environment. They, they have a lot of a spirit of service and helping humanity, but without taking on the responsibility of a family life and all that. And those are uh, admirable and wonderful people. I've met people who are in that life uh, probably who shouldn't be, and they are not, they don't glow as like the others do. They don't look like they're happy. <laughs> Thanks for explaining that. Do you think, what, do you think we're born with a, I don't like to use the word, a level of spirituality. I'm probably not terming the phrase correctly. We can only evolve in this life to a certain spiritual evolution. You know, that's um, a premise of uh, most of the Eastern spiritual traditions that, you know, hold to a model our span of years each time as a kind of curriculum as you know like the universe is a, a a big university campus and the earth part of the campus the earth earth campus is and the human life is where a spiritual evolution takes place it, you know, if you look into it, it takes place in, you know, other realms as well. But this is, that's why we're here, to grow and to learn the proper lessons and hopefully matriculate, mm -hmm. you know, and move on. But yes, that's, that's how it seems. And whether that's a cosmic truth or not is, you know, beyond my, my comprehension. But I try to treat it that way. And I think it's a good idea for all of us to assume that one of the purposes of our lives is to learn as much as we can and to grow as much as we can and to connect uh, to something vast and uh, incomprehensible and mysterious beyond ourselves. Yeah. That, that's my belief as well. And we all have, everyone has a certain capacity to grow and evolve in each incarnation. And I think sometimes we need to be humbled by others that are, they're at different levels of spiritual growth than ourselves. Yeah. And, and that humility is, it's interesting because, you know, when you travel in spiritual circles a lot, as I have, um, you meet some incredibly wonderful people. But you, and you also meet people who have a certain stature, but when, you know, there's sometimes a narcissistic or an ego-driven quality. The people I admire the most are deeply committed to their spiritual lives and are humble at the same time. It's easy to, you know, one of the little pitfalls of the spiritual life is taking yourself a little too seriously and seeing your own growth and your experiences and maybe getting, uh, you know, letting it 
shape up into an ego trip you know look how spiritual i am yeah or look at my special experiences in yeah some way. i have i'm more humble than you are <laughs> <laughs> and so you know there are little traps and pitfalls that you learn about along the way and you know or, or, always be humble one. what's that always be humble yeah and, and, and compassionate the people I admire, the further they, the more they grow, the more they develop, the wiser they become, the more humble they become. It's that, an interesting thing. I completely agree. So I have to ask you with your, well, you said over 50 years of experience of studying illumination and spirituality. In, to surmise it in 10 minutes, what can you tell us? <laughs> Well, we've been talking about it all along. I just continue to learn. I continue to grow. I realize at one point that you know this is this is a life's work, and there doesn't seem to be any end point. I tell you one thing I learned. I used to be, and I've seen this many, many, many times. Um, you you get on a spiritual path. It changes your life. If it's a deep and authentic path, your life changes for the better. And you think it'll just get better and better. And you read about the advanced spiritual souls, the, the, the realized ones, the great, the saints and the yogis and the seers and all that. And maybe if you're lucky, you meet one or two. And you, and you think, I want that. I want, and you read about these higher states and you think, uh, you know, you get goal oriented because mm. you, there, it's so appealing. And one of the things I've, I've learned is if you get too goal oriented, you, you fail to enjoy the moment. You fail to enjoy where you are. You don't enjoy the scenery. You're just thinking about what you're going to do when you get to the destination right. and you want to get there as fast as you can. And then you get, you know, but so one thing I've learned is to stop being goal oriented and just to think in terms of ongoing growth and learning and development and enjoy the state I'm in <laughs> instead of you know, this right now moment. Yes, instead of longing for the day I'm in a you know higher state. You're levitating. <laughs> yeah, or you know I'm beyond you know whatever it is that your model is, and, you know, and that that's that's a relief, you know, and 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 ironically, I think I've grown more because I stopped being goal oriented, or and less goal oriented. If the goal is just ongoing learning and development. That's easy to satisfy on a regular basis. You keep yourself in check. But you can also enjoy life. And, you know, there's much to be enjoyed. And there's much to, uh, you're, we're also called upon to contribute. And I, one thing I've found with people, after a certain number of years on the path, they not only relax more about any imagined or uh, goals that they've established for themselves but they also feel uh, a, a, an urge to contribute to to help the world to be of service in a, in, in a certain way because you feel a little bit more content inside and you realize uh, you know 
people people can use help and you want to make a contribution whatever way you can and uh, and so you know i i've been speaking a lot about that and writing about it because it's become important uh to a, a, not just me but a, a lot of people i know who are, have sort of been my my spiritual companions over the years so those are some of the, yeah. the things Interesting. Do you find that you suffer less? I mean, I, with your spiritual practices, maybe not suffering, but maybe the way you experience um, events, you have a capability to not suffer as much and look at them maybe as a lesson yes. or integrate the tools. Yes. And, um, you know, when I first got drawn to these teachings, it, I was, my life was a mess. I, it was, you know, I was young and times were very turbulent. It was a very difficult time. And the prospect of being like the, the realized beings I was reading about, the prospect of uh, having what in the Bhagavad Gita, there was one verse that really stood out where the Yogi is described as having equanimity in victory and defeat, gain and loss, and pleasure and pain. And my life was just such a roller coaster. I said, oh God, that's I want that. If I could just have some level of peace and inner stability in the midst of all the craziness, please give me that, I want that. And, um, but I made the, a little mistake. I thought that, I thought that the, it wasn't conscious on a deep level. I thought, oh, someday I won't have any pain. Okay. There won't be any more defeat. There won't be any more uh, loss. Well, no, we're in the world. There's always going to be ups and downs. There's always going to be difficulties. People are going to disappoint us. People are going to die. We're going to get sick. We're going to get old. We're going to lose our hair. You know, things happen. And there's always going to be ups and downs. But the, the level of suffering that's a that comes with the downsides of life, that can be managed. And so what I noticed was over time, I really, you know, practices really did help me develop a certain equanimity regardless of what was going on. It didn't happen as quickly <laughs> as I hoped it would. And it didn't, and it's still an ongoing thing. Just ask my wife, you know, I lose it. I get angry, I get upset. I, you know, you're not immune to the, the, the ups and downs of life and your own personality and your own baggage. But you have a certain awareness and a certain ability to rebound quickly and sometimes you even can watch yourself doing it and be almost amused by it. 
so the degree of suffering and, and, and you know, the extent of suffering when things happen does change. It does get better. And, you know, this promise of there will be no more suffering, that's an achievement <laughs> or an attainment that maybe some rare people find, you know, at, uh, come to in life. But I'm happy with just less of it. <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the realization that, you know, regardless of, you know, how lofty your spiritual perspective is or your spiritual aspirations are, you're still human and subject yes. to, you know, the decay of the body and the ups and downs of, you know, moods and, uh, you know, circumstance. Like just a, a couple of hours ago, the power went out where I live. And I was thinking, well, wait a minute, I have a Zoom interview coming up. How will I handle that? And it got very upsetting. It's like I was looking for your phone number. And oh, no. Yeah. And, and I realized, you know, whatever, it'll, it's out of your control, but you can take steps to ameliorate the situation if you just keep your head and take care of exactly. it. Exactly. You could have reacted very differently in the situation. Yeah. And I did. But in the past, you know, I might have gotten crazier, but I recovered quickly. And, and of course, the power came back on through no action of my own but you know it's just one of those moments stuff happens you know and uh in this case it was minor but you know that and and you know to get back to because i'm plugging the book spiritual practice for crazy times was written because of um last year well now year before last I, when i started writing it uh, because there are a lot of people were going through a, a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of anxiety here, especially in the U.S., uh, with the political situation of the last several years. Um, people were overwhelmed. People were anxious. People were upset. People were worried. People were afraid. And so I thought, you know, I, I could contribute something with this book, help people deal with the, the madness of it all and maintain some sense of stability and peace and coherence. And then the pandemic hit and we thought, oh, we should make changes in the book before it's published. And we said, no, everything applies. And then the pandemic will end and the information will still apply because life will always have its ups and downs. The, the degree of craziness will change and the type of craziness will change. But life is crazy and you know we want to uh, adapt as best we can and the spiritual component of it all is a very is you know a vital piece a very vital component of a complete life and a complete way to adapt to the lunacy of it all yes it's it's timeless i guess i just want to ask a final question you have the belief in re reincarnation, and I think you mentioned there was an endpoint, or is there an, is enlightenment the endpoint, and then we do not reincarnate into the physical body? So they say. Okay. There are, you know, within in certain schools of uh, in the 
Then do why is this happening? That's okay. In Someone the, wants uh, to speak to you. <laughs> I thought I shut them off. In the uh, Hindu tradition, there are schools that uh, contend that um, one can retain individuality in other realms after you know full enlightenment, or you can choose to come back and help others. In the Buddhist tradition, the uh, people, some people take bodhisattva vows, which is to to keep incarnating uh, until all souls are liberated, uh, to so you can serve and help the other. So there's different models of that, and um, I don't. Frankly, I don't give much thought to it. I'll, I'll discover whether it's true or not someday, maybe. <laughs> and so what, what would you say to those people that are afraid of dying? And it is a very big fear in our society. Yes, and, you know, as I get older, I think about it a lot as, you know, people who are close to me leave and pass on. Um, I like to think I'm not afraid of death. Uh, I am afraid of pain and suffering. I will admit to that. Um, but I don't know what's going to happen when the time comes. I may be, you know, more afraid of it than, than I realize. But I tend to think of it as um, I, I have... I have an intuitive sense that there's more to existence than this body and this personality. As Walt Whitman said, I am not contained between my hat and boots. Right. And that's a sense I have. Something survives, something is more than the body. Is the model of what happens when you die the reincarnation model, the Judeo-Christian model, I can't know. I'm inclined to think of reincarnation. It makes the most sense to me that there would be this kind of curriculum of going from one level of education to another. But who knows? And uh, I hope that when the time comes, I'm conscious and can look forward to finding out. That would be my that would be my aspiration for the moment of death. That I'd be okay and say, okay, let's see what what's about to happen. Um, but I can't be sure. No, none of us can. No. Well, what a and beautiful, honest would... answer. What's that? <laughs> what a beautiful, honest answer. Well, you know, I'm not going to pretend I know something I don't. Of course. There's enough people doing that. I don't have to be one of them. But I, I have a feeling, a hunch. Me, me too, me too. Phil, I've asked all the questions. Is there something you'd like to share to, uh, to the Passion Harvest audience? Well, no, I thank you for uh, uh, asking deep and, and good questions. Uh, you know, I don't know if we were practical enough for the listeners to, you know, who may want tips and all that, but that's why you write books. So I hope, you know, people will read Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, learn as much as they can. I would uh, invite people to go to my website, philipgoldberg.com. There's a lot of 
information there. You can contact me there, find links to my books and videos and all that. And I would also like to, uh, if I may, promote my podcast. I co-host a podcast called Spirit Matters. There are about 250 audio interviews on the uh, archive, spiritmatterstalk.com. And now we are launching the YouTube version. We started making videos of the most recent uh, interviews and we'll continue doing that. So we'll, we, have, we have a YouTube channel, Spirit Matters Talk on YouTube. And I invite everybody, it's free. And there's interviews with some really wonderful people. Uh, as, um, so that's what I would say. And I, the other thing I would say is um, you can have peace in the midst of turmoil and craziness. You already do. It's deep within you. We, you need to know how to tap into it. And there are practical methods for doing so. That's why I wrote the book. Um, and I would also add that if you're listening to this, you are probably among the privileged and the blessed because you're alive and you have internet and you're probably not destitute and you're probably not being given oxygen in a hospital room with COVID. And those of us in this position uh, should think about the people who are suffering badly in the midst of this and perhaps do whatever we can to help out. Nice message. Phil Goldberg, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And, and congratulations on the book again. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Bye. 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 That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.